The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 16 through 24. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 generations from the exile to Babylon to the Christ. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. When Mary, his mother, was engaged to Joseph, before they were married, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Because he didn't want to humiliate her, he decided to call off their engagement quietly. As he was thinking about this, an angel from the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because the child she carries was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place so that what the Lord had spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did just as the angel from God commanded and took Mary as his wife. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Good morning, friends. My name is Emily McGinley, and I have the great joy of serving as uh, the senior pastor here at City Church and in ministry with many of the folks that you see up front, um, but also don't ever see up front, but help us do what we do and be who we are. Uh, if you talk about me, you can use the pronouns she, her, and hers. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for this opportunity to come together and reflect on what it is that you would say to us this morning. We ask that you would be present within us and around us, that you would help us to clear away the things that clutter our hearts and our minds so that we might be able to listen closely to what it is that you are whispering into our ears. We invite you into this space, um, and I ask that you would speak through me, um, because of me and also in spite of me, um, that we might leave this um, time uh, with a sense of where it is that you are leading us um, in our lives um, and, and the ways in which you are inviting us to be your hope in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. A few days ago, I read, um, I came across this headline in the New York Times, why are middle-aged men missing from the labor market? And they define middle-aged men as uh, between the ages of 35 and 44. And while the greatest discovery in this article might be the fact that um, for those of you who are in that age range, you are now middle-aged, um, <laughs> there was another item that stood out to me. Um, you could do everything right and still come up short. The reporting begins with the story of the profile of, of one such middle-aged man who, after learning last Christmas that his job as an analyst at a local hospital company was being automated, chose to stay at home to care for his two young sons. 
His wife wanted to go back to work, and he was kind of discouraged about his own career trajectory after a lot of instability. Um, and so he stayed home, um, and she went to work. And he thought he'd be able to maybe shore up the finances um, through investing, which hasn't turned out all that well this year. And so, in other words, things are not working out the way that he thought that they would. The article goes on to unpack the factors behind this trend, things like industries moving overseas, automation, and education attainment levels. But if you zoom in from that 30,000-foot view, what you see is someone who engaged in multiple vocational restarts, someone who worked hard, tried to think creatively, and did everything right, but still came up short. And after reading this article, I was reminded of Joseph. I wonder if this was a little bit of Joseph, what Joseph was feeling way back when, after Mary sits him down for a very carefully worded conversation. When she's finished, he stands up, dazed. And Mary watches her visions of life with the man that she had grown to respect and care deeply for wither and fade. There will be no giddy delight under the hapa, no silliness as they step on the glass, no light-hearted horror dances. They're lifted up, tottering in their chairs. Dis-ease hangs heavily between them, and they will never be to one another what they once were, because a hard strain on trust has come sooner than any betrothed couple should expect to face. Mary watches Joseph's impassive face closely, but it reveals nothing. His heart is in turmoil, but Joseph has a choice to make. He followed the rules. He did his best, and he did his part, but still, somehow, it seems like God did him wrong. I mean, surely there was a vetting process of some kind, right? A yenta of some kind who, who knew what kind of person he was and what kind of person would be a good partner for him. After all his faithfulness, was God playing a joke on him? So this is the second week of Advent, as we've learned earlier, a time of expectation and waiting for God to break into our world, to disrupt our ideas and push us through our anxiety so that we can catch a glimpse of something fearsomely wonderful. It all sounds hopeful, wonderful, even exciting, at least in theory, right? Advent is a word, though, that means beginning or arrival. And any new beginning from God is something to be both anticipated as much as it should be feared. We're often generally pleased with the results, but the process, well, that's a whole other thing altogether. Creation sounds wonderful as a chapter in Genesis, until you ponder space and time ripping apart into day and night. Lightning of deafening decibels cracking across the edge of the universe. Continents being scraped and hollowed out with a terrifying proportions across the earth to make oceanic depths. That is nothing pleasant, even if it is awesome. A newborn baby is preceded by the rearrangement of organs and dislocation of mind and body, while even a seed cracks open the only home it has ever known to fulfill its destiny. In other words, who said faith is easy? Certainly not God. And as I pondered all of this, I thought about a prayer by Julian of Norwich. Maybe you've heard it. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well which sounds lovely and grounding and like a great thing to cross-stitch on a pillow. But in reality, this prayer emerged from the edges of death. In the 1300s, there was a European pandemic that killed 50 million people, 60% of the population. It is regarded still as the greatest catastrophe ever recorded in history. 
1373, at the age of 31, Julian contracted the virus. And having advanced in illness to the point of death, that, um, that, that people had given her, um, given her up to death. And a priest came to administer to her the last rites. Her mother had closed her eyes. And in that moment, resting on the boundary between life and death, Julian experienced a revelation, 16 revelations, that she later recorded. In images, Julian of Norwich is often depicted with a cat or a hazelnut. You may have heard the story of the hazelnut if you're a saints nerd. Um, so uh, this is what, what she says about it. And in this, he showed me a little thing the quantity of a hazelnut lying in the palm of my hand, as it seemed. And it was as round as any ball. I looked upon it with the eye of my understanding and thought, what may this be? And it was answered generally thus, it is all that is made. I marveled how it might last, for I thought it might suddenly have fallen to nothing for littleness. And I was answered in my understanding, it lasts and ever shall, for God loves it. And so have all things their beginning by the love of God. In this little thing, I saw three properties. The first is that God made it. The second is that God loves it. And the third, that God keeps it. She went on to live her life as an anchoress, completely isolated in, one, in a one-room cell off the side of a church. And yet, for all of her isolation and the smallness of her 100-square-foot room, she carried within her the knowledge of the hazelnut, of God's intentional creation of it, of God's love for it, and God's constant, unending care for it. In this, and because of this, and so much more, Julian of Norwich found her anchor in the assurance that nothing is out of God's sight. The death and decay, the betrayal and despair, none of it escapes God, which means none of it escapes the reaches of God's love. There maybe is pain, <laughs> uh, but that doesn't mean that there isn't the possibility of peace. There may be pain, but that doesn't mean there isn't the possibility of peace. Now, not long after Mary shares her difficult news with Joseph, the author of Matthew gives us a glimpse into Joseph's inner world. We're told that he is a just man. Other translations use the word righteous, our translation for today. And these words, just and righteous, I wondered about them. I looked them up. Dikaios in the Greek, it's pretty straightforward. Upright, virtuous, righteous, keeping the commands of God. In other words, Joseph is a solid dude, right? You can count on him. He keeps his nose clean, pays his bills on time, and mows the lawn every Saturday. Surely he feels hurt and confused by Mary's news, even maybe angry and betrayed. We wouldn't hold that against him. But that's not where Matthew stops. He is just and righteous. Joseph is just and righteous, but there is something else. Joseph may be righteous, but he is also kind. Instead of retribution, revenge, or even a scathing, self-pitying Facebook post, Joseph decides to resolve everything quietly and just get on with his life. Joseph is kind, and because he is kind, he moves slowly and thoughtfully. Matthew says that Joseph considered what to do, which creates a space between listening and responding. And in this space, the space between learning and responding, that God shows up 
An angel corroborates Mary's story, and Joseph wakes up and finds himself faced with a wholly different choice than what he went to bed with. He thought the choice was between public shame or quiet separation. But now he sees that the decision is between faithfulness and rejection, which is actually a choice between peace and distress. But the weird thing about it is that even though the faithful choice to trust God and stay with Mary and see this thing through, even though that path is, uh, even though that path is not destined to be a peaceful path, it is somehow a path that will bring peace. It is not a peaceful path, but it will bring peace. You hear that? Joseph comes from a good stock of faith, right? That's what the whole genealogy is all about. If you read up until right this moment, so it's all the begats, right? He, he knows what faithfulness looks like. He knows enough to know that if he rejects the angel's message, he's heard the stories of his people. If he rejects the angel's message and walks away from Mary, he will live out his days with an uneasy soul. There will be something in him that feels off and wrong. He will never be at peace. Somehow, against all reason, Joseph knows that this is somehow the easier choice, to stay with Mary. And on the surface, if he, if he were to, to not make that choice, on the surface, his life might appear to be peaceful, right? But if he walks away, inside he will be anything but at peace. There's nothing peaceful, even if he does choose Mary, about how Joseph's life will turn out. King Herod puts a hit out on all baby boys under the age of two. They flee to Egypt, and it's 12 years before they return. Joseph, a descendant of David, and many other luminous figures in Israel's lineage will not take his place as a pillar in the community. Instead, he'll become a felon and the partner of a woman who's pregnant with a child of unknown parentage. This is not how things were supposed to turn out. But because he is faithful in a weird way, this is exactly how things would turn out because he trusts the God of his ancestors, because he is a just and righteous person, and because he is kind and faithful too. Joseph chooses God, and because he chooses God, he chooses Mary. And because he chooses Mary, he ultimately chooses Jesus. He doesn't give Jesus his name or the name of his father or his favorite uncle, Zerubbabel, which I'm sure we can all agree is a good choice. No, he calls this child Jesus because that's what God tells him to do. And Joseph does that because he is just and righteous. The angel says, do not fear to take Mary your wife. She will bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus. Take Mary for your wife and name the child Jesus. That's it. That's all that is asked of him. That is all he is obligated to do. But by now we know that Joseph is much more than that, right? He doesn't do the bare minimum, and he doesn't endure a quiet sense of humiliation or um, resentment at Jesus' presence in his life. Presence in his life. Jesus, no, Joseph doesn't become a caretaker or a guardian only. Joseph becomes a father. He isn't, as one of my two favorite Christmas memes put it, he isn't the stepdad. He's the dad who stepped up. Joseph chooses Jesus to be his son, which is not something that God asks of him, right? God just says, stick with Mary, name the kid Jesus, right? 
But Joseph says, I'm going to do more than that, because that's, I am more than that. Joseph makes the choice to be a father to Jesus, and Jesus grows up in a family who loves him and cares for him, who makes him do the dishes and take out the trash, who gets dragged along to Jerusalem for the holy feasts and festivals. In other words, Jesus belongs, and he is loved, because Joseph chooses him, and Joseph chooses to be the dad who steps up. We don't always get to choose our circumstances, but we do get to choose our response. We don't always get to choose our circumstances, but we do get to choose our response. We can choose to only see the facts, the raw deal we may have got, gotten, or the bad hand that we were dealt. Those things might be facts. Or we can choose the things that are often left unseen, that are also there, but less visible. The hazelnut small and forgettable. The young and unwed pregnant, pregnant woman, another sign of shame. Or the quietly faithful, just and kind father, who in these things saw three properties. The first, that God made it. The second, that God loves it. And the third, that God keeps it. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that you make us that you love us, that you keep us, that you choose us. And help us as we look into the possibility of the choices that we can make to choose you. And in choosing you, choosing possibly not a peaceful path, but choosing a life of peace. Help us to have courage in those spaces where we feel fear. Help us to somehow find an inexplicable peace in those places and moments of anxiety. And let it all be a testament to your goodness in our life, to the fact that you love us, that you created us, and that you care for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.